chapter number 14. Ten years ago, about this time, I preached a message entitled The Life of the Land. And I'm not going to preach that message today because in that message I used uh, several quotes from our forefathers that would take a, a lot of time. And as important as that is, we're not going to uh, do that today. But I introduced the message by talking about the fact that when Hawaii became the 50th state of the Union, and that was in 1959, she brought with her her own motto, which is this. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Now to some people that might sound like just a pious platitude, but actually it is a profound truth. It's a truth that we need to rediscover and proclaim, and it is a scriptural truth. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Now look at verse number 34 of Proverbs 14, our text for today. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In other words, he's simply telling us that righteousness is a nation's strength and sin is its shame. Either virtue or vice is going to determine our destiny. And right now, the latter seems to be prevailing because some way or another, we seem to have forgotten our great need of dependence upon God. Declaring independence from George III is one thing, Declaring independence from God is a whole different thing altogether. And there can be no doubt about the prevailing attitude in America today because a lot of folks are of the opinion that we don't really need God. We get along just fine without Him. As long as we have, you know, plenty of food to eat, as long as we have plenty of entertainment, as long as our health is reasonably good, why, we don't really need God. And let me tell you, with that attitude, our future is bleak. Obviously, we have forgotten what John Adams, the second president, said. He made this comment. He said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And considering where we are today, that ought to scare the daylights out of us because history has proven our text to be true. That righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so when we look at the situation that we're in today, the question that needs to be asked that far too few are asking is this, how do we recover when we, have, when we are so far gone? I often comment on the fact that folks my age are, are basically living in a state of shock. It's just hard to imagine the different attitude that people have today in regards to our country. I remember as a boy, and uh, uh, my grandpa, whose death was uh, brought about by World War I, and my uncle who died in Korea, and those 
that fought and gave their lives for freedom here in America. And I can remember what a serious matter it was on whether it was Independence Day or Veterans Day or Memorial Day and how important that was to just the average citizen. I remember when I started the seventh grade, I needed a winter coat, and Mom and Dad didn't have the money to uh, to buy me a winter coat, and so she took what was now be a historic uh, uh, item. She took the old long trench coat my grandpa wore in World War One, and cut it off to where it wouldn't drag the ground. And I've never been more proud of a coat in my life. But it was the thought. It was the thought of uh, knowing that my grandpa wore that and as he was uh, in, in battle and serving his country and, and seeing that attitude of patriotism passed down from generation to generation. And now we see what we've got here in America today and all of the protests and so forth. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So we have to ask, how do we recover when we've gone so far from where we used to be? And, and let me tell you, there are a few folks that are wondering, is America too far gone to ever recover? In other words, they're, they're thinking, have we crossed the point of no return well, I don't know. I don't. It could be. I do know that if there if there is any chance whatsoever of of a recovery in America, it's going to require some things. One thing in particular, as he says here, righteousness. But for us to be concerned about that, there are three or four things that are absolutely essential that we do. And on this Independence Day, I want to challenge you to do these things. First of all, we need to consider the past. That is where we've been. President Woodrow Wilson said, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday, does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do, we are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been. America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the tenets of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. Isn't it amazing how much our leaders have changed today? And it, listen, it's no accident that people in high places are doing everything in their power to destroy the history of America. They don't want us looking back. And that's why they're failing to teach it in, 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 the, in the schools. I mean, that is, a, that is a plan that has been going on for, for years and years and a well-documented fact that there are those educators that, that are resistant toward the teaching of American history. They want to blur our history. They want to discredit us in any way, what they, whatever they can. That's why they're tearing down historic monuments. And then erecting monuments to, well, I don't even want to go there. It's just unbelievable. We need to look back so we can start speaking up, as it were, about our heritage 
Because if listen, if we don't if we don't remain committed to our constitution, we don't stand a chance. And we have people in high places right now saying, well, it's outdated. It needs to be done away with. And if that happens, America, as you know, America is gone. That document, that document that has been defended by the shedding of blood and the giving of lives and the sacrifice of men and women down through all of these years, that document is the very foundation upon which our law and order society is founded. And without that, we have nothing to depend upon. And then you have the politicians saying it's outdated, it doesn't really mean what it says, and they twist it and distort it, trying to get rid of it. And it's time that we look back and considered our past. But we don't want to stop there. If that's all we do, we haven't gained any ground whatsoever. We need to look at the present and see where we are. And that's not, a, that's not a pleasant thing to do whenever you look around and see where we are today. It's not a pretty picture, but it's something we need to see because our departure from God has been so drastic that it's hard to know where to even start in trying to describe what has happened in America today. I've often said our government has literally impeached God, as it were. They've kicked Him out of office as um, based on their behavior and their attitude, our schools have have uh, expelled God. Our, our courts have made laws contrary to the will of God. Our whole society is literally flaunting its sinfulness in the face of God. And our nation, more than any time in my lifetime, is divided. Need I say any more than that? I mean, we literally could study this subject of where we are for hours upon hours, documenting everything in that regards. And it might be beneficial, but I'll tell you, it would sure be wearisome to the flesh and and discouraging to the spirit to think about where we are and to think about where we've been. But then there's a third thing that we need to consider, and that's not just our past. It's not just our present, but we need to consider our prospects. That is where we're headed. I can't see the future. I have no idea about what the future holds. But I know something for certain. I know that our destiny depends upon the decisions that we make. Whatever happens in the future depends on what we think and how we act, as it were, toward the will of God. God is willing and able to save America if America will turn wholeheartedly to God. And our response to what God has revealed to us is going to result in, in either our ruin or in our restoration, one of the two. One of the two. So as powerless, as helpless as we are in this horrible situation, there's something that could be done because when we look at the present situation, there are those that have just put their hands up in the air and said there is no hope. There's just no hope. Six years ago, I preached a message entitled, We Ain't Dead Yet. We Ain't Dead Yet. 
as a nation, we are not completely dead. And I did so because I wanted people to understand that as bad as it was, as bad as it is, there is a ray of hope. I'd love to tell you that America is going to recover. Everything's going to be all right. Everything will be just fine. You know, if we get certain people in office, if the economy is back booming, if this happens and that happens, we're going to recover. We'll be restored to our Christian principles. We'll stand up for what is right. But I don't know that. So I can't tell you that's going to happen when I don't know. But neither do I know, neither do I know that we have crossed the point of no return. I, I, I don't know where we are, as it were, in history. Some people want you to believe that there's no hope. That's a foolish assumption. Whenever people become convinced that there is no hope, there's no possibility of hope, they just throw in the towel. They give up altogether. I mean, why would you put forth any effort to prevail if there's obviously no hope? And so if the devil and his crowd can convince you that it is a waste of time for you to stand up for what is right, he has won the battle because you're not going to make any effort. On the other hand, we can make our very best effort to defend America. We can make our very best effort to turn America around. But if we focus on the wrong thing instead of the Instead of the most important thing, all of our efforts are going to be in vain. We can join the crusade to save America. And I'll tell you right now, if that is all you're concerned about, you're going to fail before you even begin. So if we're going to have a bright prospect, if we're going to have a real hope, there are three things that are essential to hope. Number one, we have to remember what God has done. We can go all the way back to creation and we see the greatness of God's power again and again and again and we trace His hand throughout all of history and especially the history of this nation. We see it in the very founding of this nation. It's such a miracle that God brought those brilliant minds and devoted hearts of our founding fathers together in one place at one time for one purpose. And all of those men with their efforts combined together that God used them as his instrument for the founding of this nation. And, and you, you can't attribute that to the brilliance of man or the efforts of man. When you look at it, you have to say that's something God did. God did that. We see it in the founding of our nation. We see it in, in, the, in the fights that we have gone through as a nation. We see it in our fortunes that we have enjoyed as a nation. We even, we even see it in our failures. Because as bad as we've been, as sinful as we've been, as wrong as we've been, there have been times that God has spared us from utter destruction out of His marvelous grace when we didn't deserve anything whatsoever. And we need to remember what God has done. And during this time of moral decline, we need a spiritual awakening. 
You know, as I said, there are those that say there's no hope, there's no reason to make any effort. I, there are preachers that have that attitude that they preach it over and over again. You might as well forget about trying to do anything to save America because it's not going to happen. We generally say something like that we are in the last days and evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, you know, so there's no need in making an effort to turn anything around. Now, the Bible does say that, by the way. It is going to get worse. There's no doubt about that. But we don't have a timetable for all of that. We, we don't know the order in which all of that is coming. And for us, to, for us to say there's absolutely no hope, it just couldn't be that God would ever restore America back to where it used to be. To say that's impossible is nonsense. There have been three great awakenings in America today, and every Christian owes it to themselves to read about those spiritual awakenings that happened in America today. And strangely enough, it didn't happen in what we call the Bible Belt. It didn't happen in, in the deep south. It was all up in the northeast part of this country. The most liberal part of America today was the very places that at one time experienced a spiritual awakening in America. And it's happened three different times in our history. I'm talking about times where, where the awakening was so great that, that churches were meeting each and every day of the week. I'm talking about businesses that closed up shop so the proprietors could be there in those services. I'm talking about times whenever the saints of God literally prayed all night long and on their knees before God and begging for the mercy of God. I'm talking about the time where winning souls was more important to people than anything else on this earth. That's all that mattered to win souls. And out of that, there was an awakening in our nation, awakening like you and I have never seen, an awakening like most people do not believe is even possible today. I'm telling you, don't count God out. Don't count God out. It could happen again. I don't know that it will. I, I don't have any evidence of that. I'm just saying it could, and we need to hang on to that hope. Secondly, we need to also consider, realize what God expects. It's one thing to look at what God has done in the past, right? I never was concerned about history whenever I was in school. In fact, I wasn't concerned about anything in school. I'd sit there and look out the window, you know, and thinking, man, I wish I was fishing or hunting or playing ball. I, last place I wanted to be was in the classroom. I hated school. But I tell you, later on in life, I began to realize, boy, I wish I had listened. And, and, and history, of all things, seemed to be about the most boring thing I could imagine. But now, there is a charm about history that is so very important. And, and, and I, I love to read about what God has done. But it's one thing for us to just keep thinking about what God has done, but we need to we need to realize what God expects. After I first surrendered to preach, I began to read everything I get my hands on by all of the 
all of the great preachers. I mean, I read their biographies and autobiographies and everything I could about every one of them. I'd scrounge through every used bookstore I could find anywhere looking for those books and couldn't wait to get home and read about Spurgeon and Moody and all of these great servants of the Lord. And, and, and you know, it's one thing to look back and think, you know, that's what God did then, but we need to think about what God wants to do now and what God expects now. So what does God expect? Well, look at our text here. It's all summed up in one word. I feel certain that Solomon could have written massive volumes about the things that God desires, but it's as though he's saying, I'm going to sum it up in one word, and that is that righteousness exalteth a nation. And according to that, America is doomed unless something changes. Not only do we tolerate sin, we literally promote it today. And it is amazing to me that we still survive. I mean, I just have to wonder, God, uh, why is it that you have tolerated all of our nonsense, our sinfulness? We are so far adrift from where we used to be and where you want us to be. Why are you being so gracious? Well, it just might be because of the presence of the righteous. Do you know that Sodom itself would, would have been spared had they been able to find ten righteous souls? Just ten. To think about that wicked city and that massive population and the horrible sinfulness of those people, and yet as Abraham began to barter with God and said, Lord, how about if I could find 50 righteous you know, would you spare the city? And God said, sure, I'll spare the city for 50. And I'm sure the wheels are turning. Abraham's thinking, boy, I'm not so sure that that's going to be possible. And he begins to reduce the number till he gets down to what I believe would be the point of embarrassment. He says, Lord, if I can even find 10, how about that? God said, yeah, I'll do it for just 10. And he couldn't find ten righteous souls. Not ten was to be found. Let me tell you, the Bible says that we, God's people, we are the light of the world, we are the salt of the earth. And while the world might hate you, they might despise you. They hate Christianity. They don't understand that the very existence of this nation could very well be the presence of God's people in it that we are the salt that is preserving this rotten nation. How many, how many does it take? I don't know. Only God knows that. But I'm saying that should certainly be a factor. It might be that God is just simply allowing sin to run its course. According to the book of Romans, it's very clear there that sin has its own built-in punishment. Read that first chapter and it's very clear. It's not like God has to get out a two before and beat us over the head. God doesn't have to send cancer. God doesn't have to do something that is supernatural to punish us for our sin. All God has to do is say, there it is, have at it. He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not convenient. And so here they are. 
and, and sin has its own built-in punishment, and it could be God is saying to America, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to let it go. And sooner or later, you'll realize that you've taken the wrong turn in the road. You're on the wrong path. It might be, it might be that it's just because God's good. And remember, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. God would have been justified destroying America 30 days after America was founded. If He was just going to base it upon the facts of our personal righteousness or the lack thereof, God could have said, whoops, I gave you a chance, you've had a month, and some of you have failed miserably, I'm I'm going to just wipe you out. But He didn't do that, did He? Why? Because of His grace, because of His goodness in wanting to bring us to the place of repentance. We need to realize what God expects. We need to also remember what God has done. And that ought to lead to the third thing, which is we need to repent. Repentance is one of those words that that is despised. It's important, but yet despised. And it's a word that is greatly misunderstood because some people think of, of it as just being merely remorse uh, or a matter of making resolutions. We make our New Year resolutions and we resolve we're going to do better. Or some, some think that they make some changes and they uh, think of it as reformation because they've changed some things about their life. They stopped some bad habits and started doing some things and they think that's a repentance. But repentance requires Four things. There's four elements that must be there. Number one, we have to recognize our sinfulness. Just as David did in Psalms 51, we've got to recognize our sinfulness and call it what it is. And we have to regret our sin because, as the Bible tells us, that godly sorrow worketh repentance. There has to be that element of regret that we are so very sorry for the sin that we've committed. There has to be a renouncing of sin in our life and there has to be a return back to God. You see, repentance isn't turning 90 degrees away from your sin. Repentance is turning 180 degrees going back to God. In other words, you've been going away from God and repentance is to turn around because you could stop at 45 degrees, 90 degrees, whatever, and say, well, I've made these changes in my life. That ought to be good enough. It's never good enough until we are back to God because it's only in that personal relationship with God that we can ever truly say that we have repented and now that God is able to bless us. Not only does it require four things, it results in four things. It results in revival. Second Chronicles 7.14, everybody here could quote that, right? If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, right? If they'll pray. It starts with humility. That leads to prayer and confess their sin, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, and I'll, I'll heal their land. Wouldn't that be good to have a healing of our land today? 
You see, true repentance is going to bring revival. It'll bring not only revival, but it'll bring a refreshment, a spiritual refreshment. It'll bring relief, and it'll bring rejoicing and knowing that finally at long last we've turned back to God. And now as a result of that, righteousness exalteth a nation, and we can expect the blessings of God. Let me try to wrap this up because, you know, you, we can't reclaim what we need until we remember what we had, when we realize what we've lost, we regret what we've done, and we repent. That is, we return back to the righteous path. So to do all of that, you know, we talk about a spiritual awakening in America, and we talk about having a revival in the church, but none of that can happen unless it happens personally. Sooner or later, it always gets back to the individuals that make up the population or make up the church membership. It always gets back to the members. A church itself isn't revived except as the members are revived. And our country and our churches will never be any better than the Christians who compose the body of Christ. You know, far too many times we, we want a change in our nation. We demand it. We're going to go to the polls and we're going to vote someone in that'll stand for what is right and we're going, to, we're going to march and we're going to protest and we're going to do all of these things and, and we're going to bring America back to God and America needs this and that. But it'll never happen unless it happens personally. Amen. So we need, we need desperately a turning back to God that we might experience the blessings of God. But then there's one thing that if that's going to happen, one more thing that we need to consider, and that's our purpose. Because, you know, we can just look back at our past, and that's, that's great, that's important that we do that. And we can look at the present and see how sinful we've become. We can look at our prospects we can figure out whether we're headed in the right direction or not. But then it comes down to us personally and our purpose. Why do you exist? Why is it that God would allow your heart to beat one more time? Why does God allow you to get one more breath of air? Why? Heaven would be a lot better, don't you agree? Sometimes we talk, you know, we, we Christians are guilty of talking about dying like it's some sort of a demotion, like it's some sort of a horrible, terrible thing. And yet the Bible tells us that to depart and be with Christ is far better. We'd all be a whole lot better off. Wouldn't be no aches and pains. Wouldn't be no problems of any kind. We'd be a lot better off. But So why is it that God leaves us here? What is our purpose in life? And, and when I say that, let me tell you that every one of us has exactly the same purpose. Every one. Now, God uses us in different ways, but we all have the same purpose. As a pastor, as a pastor, I exist for one particular purpose that's more important than anything else. And whether you work in the nursery, run the sound room, drive the bus, or whatever it is you do, you exist for the same purpose. 
And that's as God said, I have created him for my glory. That's our purpose on earth, to glorify God. And we can only do that as we yield ourselves to the will of God. Remember when Paul said unto him, be glory, where? In the church. In the church. And that requires that each and every one of us pursue our purpose and try as we may to save America. That's not our mission. Our purpose is to glorify God, but what's the plan? Well, the plan is there in Matthew chapter number 28 where he gives us the great commission, go ye into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? That's the plan. And teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the plan right there. That's where the focus of every church needs to be. And sometimes over the course of years, and especially during times of great prosperity, we lose sight of why we're here and what we ought to be doing. Oh, we can be faithful in church every week. That's very important. We can be generous in our giving. That's very important. We can read our Bible every day. That is crucial. And yet never make any effort to win anybody else to Jesus. And our great need, if we're going to live a righteous life, the kind that, that God blesses, we've got to get back to serving Him by pursuing our purpose through our faithful service. But if you're here today and you've never been saved, your great need is what? Righteousness, personal righteousness. But here's the problem, you don't have any. And, and, and in fact, I don't either. And none of us do. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We don't have anything to offer God, but the Bible says that Christ is our righteousness. And it's only as you trust Him as your Lord and Savior that God is willing and able to receive you into His family. I sure hope that there's a great awakening in America and that we turn back to God but more than anything else, I want to see God glorified through people coming to know Christ as their Savior. That, that, that's head and shoulders above the importance of anything else. And if you're here and you've never been saved this morning, I pray that, that, that you'll stop trying and start trusting. You say, well, preacher, like one fellow in Kansas City told me years ago, he said, uh, sat and talked to him for a long time, shared the plan of salvation with him. And he said, I, I believe what you're saying, preacher. And he said, I, he said, I, I, he said I, I know I ought to be a Christian. But he said, uh, he said I, I don't think I could ever be a Christian. And I said, why not? He said, well, he said, I, I, I love to drink beer. And I keep beer here. And I love to go in and get me a beer. And sometimes I drink a little too much. And he said, I, I don't, he said, the one thing I don't want to be is a hypocrite. And he says, I know if I become a Christian, uh, he said, I'd have to stop drinking beer. I said, no, no, you don't, you don't have to stop. Because you're not saved because you stopped drinking beer. That doesn't save you. 
I said, if you get saved, you know, you ought to stop. And if you get saved, you probably will stop. But you see, a lot of folks are hung up on this idea that they've got to get their life in, in certain order before God will accept them. And God will accept you just like you are. Regardless of how bad you are. God says, the door is open, come on in. All you have to do is trust Him. And I'm praying that you will this morning. Let's all stand together, Father. I pray that you'll speak to hearts today. We thank you for the wonderful privilege we have here in America, the freedom that we can meet together at a time like this without the worry and the fear of of the government intervening and hindering us. We're so thankful for that blessing, but I pray that we'll use our freedom in the best possible way, which is to fulfill our purpose in life by doing our best to tell others about your saving grace. I pray you'll save the soul that's nearest hell today and be glorified in our lives here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.